0: You're listening to The Speaking Tongues podcast. I'm your host, El sharice Each week I sit down to a conversation with multilinguals where we discuss and celebrate language, life, and culture through our own perspectives. Episode 107, Speaking Hebrew, Arabic, and Persian. Hello, language lovers. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Speaking Tongues, the podcast in conversation with multilinguals. We're back after a short break this week to talk about Hebrew, Arabic, and Persian with Erin, who is a Western and Central Asian linguist, an academic, a translator, and a teacher. In this episode, Erin and I talk about her beginnings as a linguist through the Spanish and French languages, and how she came to studying Arabic and Semitic languages. She tells us about the grammar and spoken similarities between Arabic and Hebrew, and about loan words and influences on Persian from Arabic. We unpack the terms Persian, Farsi, and Dari, and try to understand when to use which and where in the world we can expect to use each term. Erin tells us about her view on being a professional translator and why it's not as simple a job as an outsider may think. She tells us about what she thinks it means to embody a language and the important nuances of appropriation versus appreciation. Now make sure you stay tuned to the end of this episode to learn a Syrian proverb along with me, there will be plenty of opportunities to practice the letter I. Big thank you to Erin for sharing your wisdom and expertise and languages with all of us. If you enjoy episodes of Speaking Tongues, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the Speaking Tongues podcast on Apple Podcasts and like and subscribe on YouTube so that other language lovers like ourselves can find the show. Special shout out to Speaking Tongues recent supporters and patrons Heidi L, Linnea H, and Pat N. If you've been a longtime listener of the show or even a recent listener, you can now pledge ongoing support for the show on buymeacoffee.com or on patreon.com. And as you know, I wrote a book. My food zine of international language and cuisine, Taste Buds Volume 1, is available now for purchase. Check social media for the sneak peek inside the book and make sure you purchase one for yourself and one for your friends. Links to all platforms are in the show notes. Okay. Let's chat. Welcome back to another episode of Speaking Tongues. I'm here today with Aaron. How are you today, Aaron?
1: Well, I' sipping at my coffee, still sort of waking up, though I've been <laughs> up for hours now. But you know how it is.
0: I'm so happy that you joining me today on this show, and this is a long time coming. We've had. Uh, you know it's been a, it's been a while that we've we've known one another so i'm happy to have this opportunity to talk to you about your languages and 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 everything really <laughs>
1: no i've been i've you're right it's a long time coming i'm i'm excited
0: i like to start each episode of the show with the same question and that is what is your first language and which languages have you learned to
1: speak so my native language is english Um, I was born and raised in a completely monolingual family, completely monolingual town, like legally monolingual. Um, And I started learning languages when I was 13. And um, I've studied a lot of languages, dead languages, living languages um, over the years because, you know, I uh, have some mental health issues that I can't control myself. But uh, the languages I generally say that I've, quote, learned to speak well um are Spanish, French, Arabic, uh, Brazilian Portuguese, uh, Persian, multiple dialects of Persian, also known as Farsi, um, and Hebrew. Those are sort of my big six.
0: Oh, okay. Exciting. How did you <laughs> I know that you also dabble in a lot more than just those, correct? And yeah, you don't you don't have I, to give the extensive list because
1: I don't I mean I don't even know if I have a full list sometime a couple years ago I tried to list and I got to 70 something and I stopped and I don't know yeah um, I mean obviously like when you do multiple romance languages you end up dabbling in more like I read some Italian I've done a little Romanian Um. most of my work professionally which I know we'll talk about more has been in Western Asia, western Asia and southern central Asia so just about any language you can name from the Mediterranean to the Chinese border and the border of Northern India. Um, I've done that. I've dabbled with most everything in Europe, most of the big stuff. I will 100% like admit, I have not done a lot in the African continent. I've done some Swahili um, and some like Somali and Amharic and like Eastern Africa and the Horn of Africa, because that's closer to sort of my region of interest. I keep telling myself like one day I'm going to finally like sit down to do Igbo or fanti or something like that. But I just keep getting distracted by things that are useful for work that um, that I, I, n- I never make time. But mm. uh, yeah, I've sort of stretched all over, to be honest. I, again, same thing. I haven't done a lot with Southeast Asia, a little bit of Thai, a little bit of Indonesian um, and with indigenous languages in the Americas. I've done a little Quechua and a little Navajo, but like my big goal is like, I don't know why I'm obsessed with Lakota. And I really like, again, at some point in my life, we'll find time to be like, I'm going to sit down and learn Lakota, more about the Dakota people and, you know, dedicate time to this. I just have no self-control. So I'm bad <laughs> at setting aside time for all of this. But yeah, I've dabbled a lot over, I've been working with languages now for about 17 years. Okay. So you can do a lot in 17 years if you have you no self-control. S- you certainly can. You <laughs> certainly
0: can. And to the next 17, I'm sure that yes. you'll have an opportunity to get to the ones that, you know, that you haven't had a chance to, to sit down with yet. But I want to yeah. ask you, um, how did your core languages, those six that you mentioned, how did those come into your life? Um, what was it like as you were learning them? And I guess maybe what drew you to them?
1: So my first my my first quote foreign or other language that I learned was Spanish. Um, I think Spanish is a common one for people from the United States because yeah. it's what we teach in a lot of schools and whatnot. Um, I had been exposed to a little bit of sign language and my older sisters had taken French in high school. And so when I was given the opportunity to learn Spanish, I jumped on it. I was always interested in the world and geography and traveling and stuff not that we traveled when I was young but I you know I would read atlases for fun me too a okay so good. Such a
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> my mother loves to tell this story about how we had this kids encyclopedia that was pretty much an atlas and about geography and they had a page about the UN and I would take it to her and be like I want to go here I want to work here I want to be a part of this um And so, and that was before I ever studied a foreign language. And then I started Spanish in school and I kind of, I mean, I loved it, but I also found out that I was good at it. I I always hesitate saying that because as I've gotten older, I've pulled back from the idea of like people being quote good at languages, Mm -hmm. but um, I've always been more of a musical person and um, an oral, oral kind of person. And then um, I'm on the autism spectrum and I'm really good with pattern recognition. And I think those two just sort of converged and languages kind of clicked for me to recognize Mm. patterns of where people place things. So I I found out I was quote good at Spanish and then I just ran with it. I did as much as I could. It's all I did in my free time. And then I started going beyond that. I you know, studied some Portuguese online with with a guy from Brazil who spoke Spanish. I started doing French on my own. I started dabbling in... Uh, mandarin and japanese and russian and arabic um i'd spend a lot of time in the library <laughs> and um that was just sort of where it was i think again french is another language that's really i don't want to say popular it's waning in popularity these days but it is more commonly taught in the american educational system um so french was sort of my next big one um i worked in in french on my own for a little while and then i started taking classes And in college was when I really, I think, sort of fell in love with French. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought, you know, oh, I'll do this. I'll work for the UN one day. I'll do, you know, all of the official languages. I had a really wonderful French teacher who she, you know, saw potential in me. She pushed me. I lived with native speakers in apartments on campus. She made speaking French fun. She just like, I don't know, it just it became part of my life. Um, Even when I had like family troubles, dealing with things in my personal life. My French professor and my Arabic professor in college, who were my advisors for my degree, they became like second moms for me. And so they just really, French and Arabic in college really became my life. Arabic was honestly kind of a whim. Um, I started college, I wanted to do Spanish, French, and Mandarin. And eventually I was like, oh, you know, I'll eventually get to Arabic and Russian and round out the UN languages. And my university had an opportunity to Take Arabic as well as a course on introduction to Islamic civilization um, with like the same group of people, it was a, like a learning community. And I took that and Mandarin and an advanced Spanish class and something else, I think, my freshman year. And I just fell in love with Arabic. I fell in love with the way it works. It wasn't like any of these other languages I had worked with, mostly being romance languages. And, and to this day, you know, I've, I work with Arabic professionally now, it's been 13 years. I still will tell people it's my favorite language. I love Arabic to death um, and Semitic languages in general. And so and I think from Arabic is where everything else started to sort of fall together. From Arabic, I ended up doing work with Hebrew and Persian and working on language contact in Western Asia And then Persian grew while I was in graduate school, and I started a PhD in Iranian historical linguistics. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Hebrew, I had sort of dabbled with in comparison, being another Semitic language with Arabic. And then as I dropped out of graduate school, I started studying Hebrew more because I was more interested in Semitic languages. And then I also ended up converting to Judaism, and Hebrew is a big part of modern Jewish practice, and we use it in liturgy. And now I work with it professionally as well. Sort of Arabic, Hebrew, and Persian have become sort of my core professional life. I still, to this day, will tell somebody like I probably still speak Spanish or French better than any of those three. Um, maybe not so much speaking. I'm a little rusty these days, but like mm-hmm. I can sit down and read Spanish literature and not question it, not think about it, barely have to look up a word. I still have to look up words in 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 Arabic, Hebrew, and uh, and Persian. So I don't. I certainly don't feel as proficient in them sometimes, mm-hmm. but. I've really just sort of fell in love with uh, Western Asia, with uh, different cultures in Western Asia, with its history. Um, And so that's sort of what I built my career around in the past 13 years. And then Portuguese, I sort of set it as an aside. I started in high school with a guy from Sao Paulo um, who spoke Spanish. He taught me in Spanish online. And then, just sort of throughout college, it kept popping back up. I like had a Brazilian friend. We lived together for a year. I took a course of like Portuguese for heritage speak or for Portuguese for Spanish speakers. Um, I used to go to these like conversation tables at University of Pittsburgh, and a lot of the professors also spoke Spanish. And I would understand Portuguese, but I'd answer in Spanish, and then they'd say it to me in Portuguese and make me repeat after them. Mm-hmm. And again, it's just sort of grown. I've read some Portuguese literature, mostly Brazilian literature. Um, I watch a lot of Brazilian TV. You know, it's just one of these, very much like Spanish or French, where it's been in my life so long now that I love it very much. Um, but it's not something that I think of as like this is a language I work with professionally. Right. right. Um, what
0: I what I'm what I think is really interesting about what you said and what I what I really picked up on is kind of very typical to how we get our first. Um, introduction to quote foreign languages here in the U S is usually through a romance language, like you said, Spanish or French. Mm -hmm. And what I think is really interesting is, you know, you had that opportunity to take Arabic and to learn Semitic languages. And that's where you really fell in love with that. And I, I think that's really cool because um, for people who don't stick with the language learning path and they don't go on to use a language in their lives or in their personal lives or their work lives. I find that if, you know, if you don't have any family ties to another language, it's, it's usually a romance language. And I'm, I'm guilty Mm -hmm. of that myself. You know, I started with Spanish. I got to Latin, Latin led to Italian, to French, and I never really studied a language outside of that romance family. And I, I hate that. Like, I, <laughs> I want to try something different. Um, but for you who had that moment with Arabic, with Semitic languages and falling in love with that, what was that like? What was that feeling like? What was the what was the spark?
1: <laughs> I'm not even sure. Like, I can definitely point to one thing, although it is probably the most nerdiest thing I can say. Um, <laughs> Well, because you meet people and they're like, I love the way this language sounds or I love the food or music or something. And that has happened to me 100%. One of the reasons I love Brazilian Portuguese is I just love the Brazilian accent. Like, I like all accents of Portuguese. I have a friend who speaks European. I like the sound of European Portuguese. I like the sound of Angolan Portuguese. But there's just something about Brazilian that it feels nice in my mouth, sort of this kind of I hate to use the word mouthfeel, but languages have a mouthfeel. You have to hold your mouth a certain way to pronounce the sounds, particularly vowels and whatnot. Um, and I like, I like that with Portuguese. Arabic, however, and generally this is spread into Semitic, was a much nerdier thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Semitic languages have a different type of grammatical system that in linguistics we refer to it as being non-concatenative. Um, And I always teach my students this word. I actually had a student repeat it back to me a couple weeks ago, and I was so proud of him. I gave him a hug. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much what it is, is concatenation as a word means to put things in order to to make a, a series out of something. And Semitic languages in their grammar, they don't make a series. They don't put suffixes or prefixes or they do here and there, but that's not the core structure of how they're their grammar or their morphology really works. The core structure of Semitic languages is that you have a root anywhere from two to four, sometimes occasionally five letters in structure. The most common is three. And then we manipulate the root itself. So it's not like here we're going to put an O ending for a present tense verb like in Spanish or something. It's... If I, you know, a really good example of this that I I use a lot in my classes is if I want to create a professional or historically, this was any sort of hyperbolic adjective, somebody who does something a lot, but in modern Semitic languages, it's come often to mean a professional. I put a short A in between the first and the second consonant. I double the second consonant and I put a long A in between the second and the third consonant. So for example, in Arabic from the root which means to cook, we get which means a chef or a cook. Um, from fanana, the a root meaning art, we get fanan, meaning an artist. But again, this goes everywhere. So like from shatama, which means to curse or to say a bad word, we get shatam, which is somebody who, who curses a lot, somebody who talks bad about people, somebody who or from Namama, which means to, to gossip, we get namam, which is a gossip, like somebody who gossips a lot. But this exists in Hebrew. We don't hear it as much in modern Hebrew because we don't mark doubled consonants in our speech. Um, so we get a word like pasal, means sculptor, from the root uh, peisamechnon, uh, from pasana, so from has to do with sculpture. And we don't hear the, the doubling of the S, so we don't get pasal, and we don't hear the vowel length difference, but if you look at the way they're marked historically, this is the same root or the, or the same pattern. Um, and so this is everywhere. Like I, it's fun to show it as an example, but I mean, this is everything. This is down to the word for to dictate comes out of the root meaning to write. And it's in a pattern that says that this pattern means that we're making somebody else do the root of the verb. So to dictate, to make somebody write. Or there's a pattern to say that this is something that happens between people. And so to correspond is the root of the verb to write in that pattern. And I mean, it's everywhere, you know, down to things like the first word you learn, like hello or something, you know, marhaba in Arabic is from the root rahaba in the pattern mafal in marhab. And then it, originally, it's also a, it's an accusative ending because it's probably an adverb, marhaban. Um, but so there's a lot of pieces there. But at the end of the day, no matter what the word is, short of you know some loan words, usually every single word functions this way. Every single word in Semitic languages have a root that are that is part of a pattern and that pattern carries meaning. Mm. And that's how we derive the meaning of the word. It doesn't work 100 percent of the time. <laughs> Well, it does, but its languages change over time. So, for example, um, in Arabic now, the verb to graduate, literally, historically, that verb would have meant to make oneself leave, to make oneself exit. Mm -hmm. It's come to mean to graduate because of the way language changes over time. Right. And that's how it was seen, is that a university made you exit. So you can say that a jamia kharjata that it it graduated the students, that it made them leave. And then you can say like, that I made myself leave, but it means I graduated. Um, So sometimes you have to look at things in their historical concept or context, sorry. And it doesn't always work 100% of the time, but this is the overall structure. And this was explained to me in my first Arabic class. And then... It became like an obsession. Like everything I did was revolving around this. And now when I teach Arabic, I highlight this. And I've had colleagues ask me why, why would you do this? And honestly, I think it makes it make sense for like foreigners when they're learning Arabic. Arabic sometimes feels very random. Like there aren't like plurals, there aren't great patterns to recognize a plural. There are certain patterns and we can recognize some of them, but you can't always predict the plural of a word because the plural will be a different pattern of the root. And if you can explain to students that, oh, this is where this plural is coming from, and that this is a type of plural, that this is a pattern, and here are a bunch of words, you can start to build an intuition about what these words mean. This whole system is like, I just was a big nerd, and I fell in love with Arabic. And then this spread into Hebrew, and... Persian isn't a, isn't a Semitic language. It's an Indo-European language, but has a lot of Arabic loans. So mm. I've been really interested in how loans and how different patterns are brought into Persian and to what extent early Persian speakers, when these are being loans, were aware of these patterns. And they were very much so. We, we, we have evidence that says that they knew how to manipulate them and everything. Right. And they would build new ones. They would take a Persian word and try to pull a three or four letter root out of it, and then build a new word using an Arabic pattern. So early new Persian speakers were very much either bilingual with Arabic, which is probably they were, um, or were very much aware of the way Arabic grammar worked, that they could manipulate it and create new words that weren't Arabic words at all, but they looked like Arabic words. So this whole system is—it's become—it's become a bit of an obsession over the past thirteen years. <laughs> like it's. But, but that's really what it was, was I fell in love with this and I just thought it was fascinating. And again, it worked in my sort of pattern brain that I like recognizing these these patterns.
0: I haven't heard that kind of breakdown of how, you know, that, that pattern that we see in Arabic before. And it appeals to like the, the person, like the puzzle lover in me mm-hmm. who loves um, figuring things out in 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 that sort of way. And I really had no idea that Arabic followed that pattern. And, you know, to me, I I want to learn Arabic so badly. And I know, you know, coming from my background with Romance languages, it's going to be completely new for me, (laughs) you know, and I'm, I'm ready for, I'm ready for it. I'm, I welcome it. I'm looking forward to it. So, you know, hearing that and maybe anyone else who's thinking about learning Arabic and hearing that I think is really encouraging um, to know that it can be formulated Mm -hmm. in this, in this way. Um, Yeah.
1: It's definitely more approachable.
0: Yeah. Do you notice any patterns like that? And I think what's really interesting about, you know, we're talking about Arabic, Persian and Hebrew. And I think that this is a really interesting cross-section of languages that have relationships and different like big differences and similarities between all of them in this you know cross-section of the world but like where do you see i guess those crossovers in those three languages and and any type of you know formulaic formations Mm -hmm. with (laughs) with you know between between those three languages
1: yeah. Um, I mean, so obviously, Arabic and Hebrew are both Semitic languages. Um, and so they obviously have similarities. They have similar patterns. They also have different patterns. Um, I think there's, I have a different approach and a different point of view sometimes because I worked in historical linguistics. So there are relationships and patterns that might not be obvious to somebody who speaks modern Arabic and modern Hebrew. Um, But I see them because, oh, this is similar to this, and this sound would have changed, and, you know, I can see how we got there. Um, But even on the surface, there are a lot of similarities. There's obviously, like, just literal similar words, um, especially in, like, if you look at numbers or body parts or things, you see, you know, very much, like, a lot of similarity. You know, like, the Arabic word for hand is yad, and the Hebrew word for hand is yad. And, you know, an i in Arabic is ayn. And the Hebrew word is ayin, and it's spelled with the word with the letter that makes the a sound in Arabic, but we don't pronounce that anymore in Hebrew. Um, So there are very literal like similarities, Um, and then there are structural ones over time that you can look back and say, well, you know, these prefixes are these prefixes in Arabic. They might sound different now, but they are historically coming from the same place. These forms or these patterns. However, you know, they're still different. Like. What is the present tense in modern Hebrew is what we call the present participle in Arabic, which is used sometimes as the present tense. It's used sometimes as the past. Um, And what is the future tense or what is the present tense in Arabic is the future tense in Hebrew. Um, And so there are obvious differences. Um, Hebrew has an infinitive form. For example, Arabic does not. We don't have a form that says to write. You either cite it as he wrote or you have writing as a noun. Hebrew Mm -hmm. has writing he wrote and an actual infinitive form to write. Mm -hmm. Um, So there are definite differences because they are they they're related, but they're different. They're they're from different parts of the Semitic family. Mm -hmm. Um, Persian is more the outlier, I think, because it's it's Indo-European. It's not the same language family at all. Um, It has a very high volume of Arabic loan words. Um, and that's honestly how I got into it first. Was I was working on Arabic contact with neighboring languages, and it's harder to do Arabic Hebrew contact because at the end of the day they're related. So we can sit here and fight about is this a native word to Hebrew that just died out of use and came back, you know, in the present day after modern Hebrew was sort of quote revived, or is it a loan from Arabic into Hebrew that came in the present day? Whereas. An Arabic loan into Persian is usually quite obvious. It, it's it's something that we can look at and say that's from Arabic. It, it mm-hmm. comes from a triliteral root system. It follows this pattern. And there's more than that. There's I mean, I wrote I wrote my undergraduate thesis on this. So there's a lot I could talk about. But there's even grammatical changes. There are grammatical features in modern Persian that shouldn't theoretically exist, um, that do because of Arabic that we can look very literally there's at least one that I can think of that you can look at translations of the Quran for example and um, translations of other Islamic texts from Arabic into Persian and at different points in history they're using different grammatical structures mm. and the modern grammatical structure mirrors that of Arabic actually um, and and that structure that exists in the in modern Persian shouldn't exist because it exists in other Indo-European languages, but only in only under certain conditions, and Persian doesn't meet those conditions. I don't want to go too deep in it, but it has to do with infinitives and subjunctives and whatnot. But so though Persian is very different from Arabic and Hebrew because it's an Indo-European language, there's still so much overlap. You know, mm. there there have been Iranian Jews for years. Right. Um, the, the the ancient Israelites lived under the Persian Empire. There's a lot of history there. Um, obviously, Iran and well, modern day Iran, Afghanistan, and and Tajikistan, but the former sort of Persianate world even um, is part of the larger Islamic world. And so that's you know, and honestly, that's probably a better word to define. The region i work in is very much the islamic world my my focus has been less on islam as a religion but really if you look at the boundaries of what i work in now it very much is sort of the islamic world for the most part like i go up into turkey you know and i go as far as as you know pakistan and india but um but linguistically, my, my, my comfort zone has always been more in Arabic and Persian and Hebrew. Um, so there's a lot of overlap in history as well mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. culturally, but then there's also cultural differences. Right. One of the things I really like about studying language contact is also cultural contact and cultural fusions. So looking at something like the celebration of something like Noruz. Okay, Noruz is a Zoroastrian religion, or Zoroastrian religion, it's Noruz is the Zoroastrian holiday. It's mm-hmm. it's, the, it's the spring equinox. Um and and it marks the new year, right? And it's celebrated all throughout what was formerly more of the Iranian world, but that's also what became a lot of the Islamic world. And so watching people who are very much devout Muslims also you know celebrating norruz or incorporating norruz in with their practice or you know when we get into sufism and you know just these blends of kind of mysticism with islam and some of that mysticism if you study it deeply enough very much harkens back to zoroastrianism mm-hmm. persian poetry written by islamic authors will take themes from islam but also be pulling themes from Zoroastrianism, um, you know, and 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 I don't think this is always obvious to people. Um, obviously, like if you study Persian poetry, for example, you very much learn these things, and that's how I've learned some of it. Was I during my PhD, I studied a, a fair amount of Persian poetry, but there's just so much there because of we're literally talking centuries of just right. constant contact, mm-hmm. um, and so they're not separate worlds. Mm -hmm. And they're also, you know, I also very much like to remind people, they're also not monoliths, that the Iranian world is not a monolith, that the Arab world is not a monolith, that the Hebrew speaking world outside of, you know, the modern state of Israel and all the political stuff that happens there, there are Hebrew speakers outside of Israel. There's a whole history of Hebrew speakers in Judaism in Europe and in other parts of the world that we don't even think about. You know, we talk about Jews in Europe and we talk about the modern state of Israel, but we very often overlook, Ethiopian Jews or Jews in South Asia right. or, you know, Kaifeng Jews or Chinese Jews um, that, you know, they still very much are practicing their own forms of Judaism. And there are these blends into even into the religious practice. Like I mm-hmm. just started recently learning more about Ethiopian Jews and their canon of religious literature, like what they think of as as like as the quote Hebrew Bible as the Tanakh or as the larger idea of Torah isn't the same as mine,
2: Mm. you know, like
1: we all, we all sort of accept the five books of Moses in Judaism, but then, you know, European Jews, most generally like, you know, Ashkenazi European Jews, Sephardic, which is like Mediterranean Jews. And then Mizrahi, which is Eastern, but generally we use it to mean Arab Jews. We all sort of accept the Tanakh, which is from a Christian perspective, the old Testament, um, as the larger sort of collection of writings, but Ethiopian Jews have even more books than that, or even their sort of more smaller codified thing, which for us is just the five books of Moses, has six or seven books, and it's the five books of Moses, like plus Ruth, and maybe something else It's, you know, and so in Judaism, we like to talk about, you know, Hebrew unites us, and we all celebrate the same religion, and we all, you know, celebrate the same holidays. But, you know, Ethiopian Jews have a very different practice and And this is something that unfortunately is widely overlooked in like American mm-hmm. Judaism, that we talk about the difference between Ashkenazi Jews, European Jews, and like Sephardic Jews, like Mediterranean Jews. but we never really take time to even think about Ethiopian jewry and what Ethiopian jewry's history is and their and their scriptures and what their texts look like being translated into Amharic, which is another Semitic language, and so mm-hmm. like that's something that I'm like. Oh, I need to get into this because it's a whole other Semitic language, right. a whole other community, and so there's, I don't know. And this is this is sort of how you just end up doing everything. Sometimes, <laughs> at the end of the day, everything's connected. Everything you know?
0: is everything is connected. I want to talk about Persian, mm-hmm. um, because there's some things that I need to learn. <laughs> sure, I think, <laughs> I think that you could really help with this because. Um, when i learned that iranians speak uh or iran used to be called persia so persian is the i i can never pick like parts of speech out of my head i'm sorry but (laughs) persian is the demonym the demonym uh yes okay uh it's (laughs) the demonym of of persia i'm like okay so and and this is not recent this is like years and years and years ago okay so what do Persian people speak and I I was always told that they speak Farsi Mm -hmm. okay but now I don't really see like Farsi being used as like the word I see people saying Persian Mm -hmm. and then I hear Farsi also so I don't know when do I use what (laughs) am I offending anybody am I am I missing a bigger picture and then I used to work with a guy who was um I don't remember where he was from, but he told me, oh, yeah, I speak, he said, I speak Persian, but I don't speak the Iranian Persian. And I was like, do you mean you speak Dari? And he says, yeah. How did you know that? I was (laughs) like, because I'm awesome and I know a yeah. lot of things, <laughs> um, I just really took a guess. Like he could have, I don't know. But so now, so now I learned Dari, and that, and it's funny because when he asked me that, I had just learned about Dari like the week before. So I was really proud of my retained knowledge on this yeah. one <laughs> subject. But so now we have Dari. I have Dari in the picture and Farsi and Persian, and oh my, when do I use what? What am I referring to? Am I offending people by refer- referring to one over the other? Like, how, how do we proceed?
1: Oh, this is, this is such a fraught topic that I oh. have had many opinions on. I mean, at the end of the day, you'll always offend someone. Um, I, I almost have a, a PhD in this and I still offend people. Uh, so generally, <clears throat> let's just sort of define terms and then we can look at it that way. The ancient Iranian empires, particularly the Achaemenid Empire was known as the Persian Empire and it comes from a region that they lived in which is modern day southwestern Iran which is even in 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 um uh so it's it's referred to now as Pars province or as Fars province depending on who you ask the f comes from arabic because arabic didn't have a p that is what it is However, the word Persian comes from, so these people that were inhabiting this region that founded the Achaemenid Empire said that they were from this place called Parsa in Old Persian. And that's the word that got loaned into the Greeks when they had contact with the Greeks. And that's where we get the word Persian now. So Persian is not wrong. Farsi. Well, okay. And let's pause here also. Iran, the modern-day term Iran, comes from a Middle Persian term, A-ron, uh, which was the term for the Iranian empire, Iran Shahed. It was the empire of Iran. Iran itself comes from the word Aryan. Now, Aryan was picked up by the Nazis and used in the way it was, unfortunately. But Aryan was a word that was present in Indo-European languages everywhere, and it just meant noble of some sort. And so this was the land of the nobles, of mm-hmm. the people who were the noble ones. And this Arya became Eiron, or Aryana technically become Eiron, and Eiron became Iran in modern, in modern Persian, and what we call okay. Farsi and No in, in New Persian. Farsi is the word in Farsi for Farsi, or is the word in Persian for Persian? Okay. I want to term that. So some people will tell you saying Farsi is wrong because do you walk around and say, oh, I just left my Espanol class. Mm. No, we say Spanish. Spanish is the English word for Spanish. Why would I say Espanol? It's the same sort of concept that Farsi is the word in Persian for Persian. So why say this? And that's generally my point of view. However, one, I am not a, I'm not a native Persian speaker. I'm not an Iranian. And there are Iranians, particularly, who like to use the word Farsi because when they hear Persian, they think of ancient Iran. And so if you say, Do you speak Persian? they're thinking like old Persian of the Achaemenid Empire. Okay. And, and it's similar when we talk about like Persian people what are Persian people? They are people who speak Persian. Okay, but that's not just Iranians. That's Afghans. That's Tajiks. That's other ethnic groups inside of Afghanistan, like Hazaras. Um, it's, it's, Persian is a much larger sort of term if we're referring to people. In terms of a language, it is also much larger because Persian is spoken in Iran and Afghanistan and Tajikistan officially. It's also spoken in parts of uh, Azerbaijan. It's spoken in parts of Iraq and other neighboring countries, and obviously wherever the diaspora is. Historically, this was sort of again one. I don't want to call it a monolith, but there was a larger Persianate world where people spoke Persian. There's actually a wonderful book on this. I'm blanking on the on the name of it right now, but it's by Niall Green. Uh, he's a professor at UCLA. He's wonderful. And he tries to teach sort of, quote, Iranian history or Persianate history from that perspective of what is the Persian-speaking area, Um, which goes into what is modern-day India with the Mughal Empire in northern India. But we don't think of India as being Persianate or being Persian. Um, In terms of language terms, Farsi, Dari, and Tajik, which is what we usually hear now these days, in Afghanistan, if somebody asks you, do you speak Persian? They will use the word Farsi. They'll ask you, like, Shamal Farsi Gap Isari. However, when the constitution of Afghanistan was written, the actual constitution says that the two official languages of Afghanistan are Dari and Pashto. Pashto. Yeah, Pashto is a whole separate language. It's still from the larger Iranian language family, it's from a different branch, but Dari is just a dialect of Persian. And similarly, Tajik is the Tajik dialect of Persian. But if you talk to Tajiks, a lot of them will call it zaboni Tajiki, that it is the language of Tajik. It's the Tajik language and not a Tajik dialect. Mm-hmm. Um, generally, like personally, I use Persian to talk about the language as a whole. Okay. If I'm going to speak about a specific dialect, historically, when I was in graduate school, to be a little bit more PC and academically correct, I would talk about Iranian dialect, Afghan dialect and Tajik dialect. However, in the modern translation world, because of, um, honestly, because of modern geopolitics and um, defense translation and political translation, even if you work outside of that community, like I just work in private translation, we still distinguish between what is Farsi, Dari, and Tajik. Mm -hmm. I think some of that is about accuracy, is that if you're trying to get really good translation, if you say Farsi, you're looking for an Iranian who's going to understand the nuance of dialects from yeah, Iran. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas if you want an Afghan to understand the nuances of Afghan dialect, you can say Persian parentheses Afghan dialect, but you can also just, we, we've begun using the term now Dari. Dari is just the dialect of Afghanistan. In terms of what the right word is to use, I don't know anymore. Honestly, like at work, we talk about Fari versus Farsi versus Dari versus Tajik, and it is what it is. I prefer Persian when talking about it as a whole. I've said this to Iranians who will correct me and say my language is Farsi. I think that's a personal choice. Identity politics are identity politics. We all get to choose how we identify in the word that we like. I'm a trans woman. I'm a transgender person, but I prefer the phrase woman of trans experience because it's a phrase that highlights my womanhood. Nobody gets to tell me what, what word I choose. So why would I look at an Iranian and say, it's wrong of you to call your own language Farsi. Mm-hmm. It's whatever. Let them call it what they want. You call it what you want. And we'll all continue on with our day. But there is a lot of confusion about this. You'd be surprised how often, like I see people on the internet being like, "What? what is it? And what's the difference? And people telling other people that it's wrong. Even if I think that saying Farsi is wrong, it doesn't matter. Because at the end of the day, that's that's me. I can only control my language. So it is what it is. Say whatever you want, <laughs> as long as it's not mean. <laughs> and it's one of the proper words.
0: No, thank you for that. Thank you for you know, walking us through that, that distinction, because I know it was, it was really weighing on my mind. And,
1: <laughs> and it's not just you. So many people I, I struggle with this, I think.
0: I want to ask you a fun question because we've talked a bit about where root words and where words come from and what mm-hmm. words get into. And I would love to know, cause I love etymology. Sure. And I would love to know if you have any favorite roots that turn into something else and just something that's always like tickled you or something that's always um, delighted you in some way either in in Hebrew or Arabic or in
1: Persian oh lord <laughs> do you want to come, come back to it yeah, maybe we can come back to, I can think of a couple things off the top of my head that are interesting, but not as deeply fun and interesting. But yeah, give me a couple minutes. to think okay. about it. we can come back to that.
0: Uh, talk to me about being a translator and not necessarily what you do um, and, and the ins and outs of what you do. Talk to me about that feeling of working with this language that, or these languages that you initially fell in love with. And now you are gaining this proximity, not only to speakers of this language but to the culture that's practiced Mm -hmm. alongside of it. Um, What does that feel like, what is that, what does that encompass for you, what does it mean for you
1: um I mean I can sort of tell you what I do it's it's I mean I can tell you what I do it's just it's boring I I mostly translate media these days I work for a private company that follows trends in media um in Arabic and in Hebrew is mostly what I do these days is Arabic and Hebrew but I've also done some work for them in Farsi or in, in Persian um and it's a lot of translating news or uh translating like social media responses to news and then we just track sort of media I don't I don't know it's it's honestly boring but I left teaching and this is where I ended up. And, uh, I do like it. It's more, I like the people that I work with. I do. And that's kind of what it's gotten me is when I think about the big picture, what I do it's kind of boring. But when I think about the colleagues that I get to work with every day, um, I'm one of the only non-native speakers in my office. Um, which is a little bit strange because a lot of times when you translate, you end up translating into your native language and, uh, A lot of my colleagues are not native English speakers, but they just have very, very high proficiencies in Arabic or uh, in English. To be honest, I never thought I'd be a translator. Uh, And I'll be completely frank. People ask me all the time, how do you become a translator? I feel so unprepared. Um, Translating is a, it is a skill and it is an art. And I don't think people think about that. People just Mm. think if you speak a language, you can translate. And you can, to a certain degree, But to really do it like full time, like, and this is all you do. There are skills that I've just happened to learn along the way. And I've thought about taking like online translation classes about the theory behind translation. Luckily, I did some of that when I was in school, but honestly, I've always been more of a user of a language. So I've been very much like a, I learned to speak Arabic, not to translate it into English. So there's things I know how to express in Arabic that I don't know how to express in English. Mm. Um, there are things that um, I know how to express in English. So I don't know how to express in Arabic, obviously, as a non-native speaker. But there are times where, you know, I'm, I am I see something and I will literally look at a colleague and be like, does this sound right in English? And they're like, you're the native speaker. And I'm like, I don't know, though. I've been reading this five-page article in Arabic for an hour. like, mm-hmm. And I'm just so lost in the Arabic that I don't know if the English that I'm creating makes sense anymore, like, like, (laughs) does this make sense to you? Mm -hmm. Um, I do think there is a certain level of accomplishment that I feel in translating. um, And especially working in the office that I do with so many non-native speakers, there is a certain level, if I can have this moment of like kind of patting myself on the back, knowing that I'm at a level that is good. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about proficiency levels in the language community. And we often overestimate our level. And even when I got into translation, when I stopped teaching at a university, I still teach privately, but when I stopped teaching at a university about three years ago, there the process to become a translator is is hard sometimes. It's a lot of freelance translation. It's a lot of, you know, just applying to different companies and hoping that somebody you know, lets you in. And, um, I knew somebody that worked for this company and they, you know, got me in touch with people. I still had to like do a sample translation and that was really hard. Um, and, and I remember doing the sample translation and feeling like, Oh God, I don't, I don't know Arabic well enough. I've been working with this language for 10 years. I've taught it and I don't know Arabic well enough to do this translation. And I felt very, very inadequate. And mm-hmm. then I got the job and I was very happy, um, but I realized that I still had a lot to learn. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I've learned a lot in the past three years. My Arabic has grown leaps and bounds, as is my Persian, as has my Hebrew over the past. I've mostly started working with Hebrew for the past maybe six or seven months. Um, and that was mostly just out of a need. Our company didn't have somebody who spoke Hebrew and I did. And they said, well, do it, for, you know, kind of in the meantime. and. Um, I've just sort of stuck doing it. They haven't found anybody else. And apparently my translations are decent enough (laughs) that they qualify, but I still often feel inadequate. And I Mm. think translation is kind of that field where even if you have a degree in translation and you understand the theory of translation, and I don't have a degree and I've done one or two translation classes in my life, I think you're always going to feel inadequate. There's always a new word, especially again, I don't think people realize the level you have to have for translation. You know, people talk about like my goal is to hit this level or my goal is to be here to do this sort of work all day long. You're not sitting around with this cute little conversational B1. Like I I think my my Hebrew is maybe a, a comfortable high B2, maybe not in speech, but in reading and writing it is. Um and I still feel often very inadequate. It's a it's a hard field to be in, mm-hmm. um, and so I do say that to people a lot. Um, that if you do want to be a translator, uh, really prepare for it. You know, take classes in translation, do a degree in translation if you can, because we often underestimate what what translation is. And I think as people who do not work as professional translators we often we often just assume like knowing a language means you're qualified when you're really not
0: I feel like you were talking directly into my soul oh sorry you like <laughs> and you're like this is hard this is what did you say like people sit there with their comfortable b1 and I'm like oop yeah.
1: well no guess- and don't get me wrong. like that's I don't okay say qualify somebody's b1 at all um I have B one in language. I'm teasing. But... I'm totally teasing.
0: I'm I'm saying that just it's a because big jump. Yeah, because like I I feel like I am probably overestimating my B one in French and
1: Italian. But I would love to. I would love to get into translation someday. I think the easiest way to get into it is to start the freelance route. Mm-hmm. The hard part is just that's hard to do. As a sole source of income, as your whole job. And and honestly, there are a lot of people who do that. Like I feel very fortunate the fact that I get to work for a company. Like I don't get paid by translation. I don't get paid per word the way a lot of freelancers do, or even people who work for companies but are sort of contractors underneath of the company. I go into an office and I am given a lot of autonomy to just because part of what I do is translation, but again, Part of what I do is—is is my company or at least my division that I work in—we track media, mm-hmm. and so it's not even like things get handed to me here. Translate like that, like it happens. But a lot of what I do is I go out and find my own things, and I track trends in Hebrew and Arabic language media, and and sort of um, monitor. I don't even like using the word monitor, but I I track what is happening in media and then translate chunks of it so that other people can know um I don't have a typical translator's experience by any mm-hmm. means right um but I will say like translation is a lot harder than people think it's not yeah. that it can't be done but I think it is it is not what we expect it to be
0: yeah I bet and I think that it's it's another one of those things that's like a very romantic in a lot of mm-hmm. people's minds just like being able to maybe travel or being able to just um embody the different personages that come with speaking different languages. And it's very, very uh, appealing to, I think, you know, to people who would be appealed by that, Mm -hmm. Um, like myself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But as this is really um, a great way to get into the next thing that I want to ask you, which is about, you know, embodying A language versus studying a language. And as you pointed out, that distinction between, you know, Spanish, you had a very uh, regimented use for it with translation and interpretation, which I can't imagine how difficult interpretation and simultaneous interpretation must be. Like, I don't know what, how one's brain has to be wired in order to do that. It's Um, hard. (laughs) It's (laughs) It's it's <laughs> it's exhausting. It sounds like one of the hardest jobs that you could ever do in life. Um, but, you know, that and having a task driven need for a language like Spanish, as you did at that time, and then versus, you know, having Arabic be a part of your life and studying it um, because it brought you enjoyment. And, mm-hmm. you know, how do you how do you balance those two things so what does that mean to you um you know if you haven't already talked about this maybe you no. already dropped it in the conversation
1: I I, I I don't know if I've addressed it specifically I think there is a difference sometimes in what drives us to study a language um and and I don't I don't think there's a good or a bad reason to study a language really at all um I mean, maybe there's a bad reason if you're like, I hate these people and I want to learn their language to kill them or something like that's, I'm sure anything can be used for bad purposes, but generally, you know, well, some people I think look at this sort of practical language use, um, you know, this sort of trend that we see of like, oh, China is an up and coming, not even an up and coming anymore. China is a big economy. And if you want to do business, do Chinese or something. I don't think that's wrong. I don't think there's anything wrong with taking that approach. I think it is a very different approach. And I think you have to have a mindset for it. Like personally, if I'm not engaged or intrigued with something, I I can't do it. You know, like I've been told that I have to learn German before and I've studied German and I've taken reading exams during graduate school in German, but I don't speak German particularly well. Like I read with a dictionary, I read probably at a B2C1 level, but that's with the dictionary, that doesn't count really in some ways. Um, But I speak maybe B1 German at best on a good day. I haven't spoken German in years though. And and it's because I never wanted to, it's because I never had an interest in German and I just never got enraptured with the language the way I did with other languages. And I don't think there's anything wrong with learning a language out of need or out of necessity or out of a goal. I just know that that doesn't work well for me. I've done it. I don't know if I've ever done it one hundred percent. I always either end up falling in love with the language still, or a language that I enjoy in other ways came to become useful. So, for example, I've done a lot of like languages with, um, you know, Western Asia, Southern Central Asia, or even you know, sort of. Historically, colonial languages like Russian or French or whatever um, that have that have been useful in this region, Russian more so for like Central Asia. Um, and I enjoyed the languages of their own, like in their own right. I enjoyed learning French. I enjoyed learning Russian, but Russian became useful for me when I went to Georgia, the country, and I used Russian to study a language, a minority language inside of Georgia, or their. Has been a weird flux in the number of like Pashto translators on the market. And I work with a Pashto translator, and he's a very nice man, and he's offered to help me with my Pashto. And from our perspective, it is for the sake of translation, it's for the sake of work. But because I studied Pashto before, and I loved Afghan history and Afghan culture, and I wanted to be able to read Pashto literature and things, it's, it's not hard. Hard for me to get back into Pashto, even though now the goal is a more professional goal and, it, and it's about using it for, for professional reasons. It's my original love for that language that will really drive me to do it. Or conversely, same thing, Mandarin is just, I see constant requests for more and more Mandarin translators. And mm-hmm. I've done some Mandarin, I found it interesting. I didn't fall in love with it, I fell in love with Arabic, so I stayed with Arabic. Like I, I, I took a semester of Mandarin when I first started college. And I've really struggled doing it by myself since I have Mandarin books sitting here right next to me. And it's it's just a language that is hard to do on your own, especially with tones and with the writing system and things. And last week, I started doing lessons with a friend of mine who speaks fluent Mandarin. He lived in China for like six years, has his bachelor's degree he did in China and his master's degree. Part of his master's degree was teaching Chinese as a foreign language. Um, he's American born and raised, but he just lived in China for a long time and has gorgeous, gorgeous Mandarin and being able to share in the language learning process with somebody like him and the fact that he and I are friends and he can point things out to me that like, I'm going to find extra interesting or that I'm going to take interest in, Mm um, that that definitely helps even though the goal is to actually have some sort of professional use of Mandarin in the long term you know this isn't going to be next year This is going to be years from now (laughs) but I don't I don't think there's a problem with either set of goals I think it's about who you are as a person and what really motivates you Um, I do think that because you mentioned about sort of embodying a language I think that helps I very much believe in immersion Um, not always in the classroom immersion but like I tell my Arabic students, you know, listen to music in Arabic, watch TV in Arabic. It doesn't matter if you don't understand a single word. That sort of exposure to the language over time and just surrounding yourself with it is going to affect the way you hear it and the way you address new words when you hear them because you may have heard them previously. Or, you know, because maybe when you hear them next time, you're like, oh, I learned that word. I know Mm. what he's talking about now. And this sort of, um, embodiment of a language, whether it's in music or film or even food, languages are life in a way, you know, it's, it's how we go throughout the world. And so to really understand a language, you can't just read it from a book and learn, you have to live it in some way. I think there's a way to do that respectfully. Like, I'm not saying let's go in culturally appropriate, like Arab culture or something. Um, I think there's a line that has to be maintained of like respect and recognizing like, this is respectful. This is not respectful. Or at what point have we gone from, I like making tabuli in my house versus tabuli is my dish. And mm. that sort of claiming it as one's own. It's not It's not your own. It's not my own. This is a thing that I even struggle with in teaching sometimes that I've talked about this with other teachers it's like, I've worked with Arabic for 13 years. I consider myself a quote, speaker of Arabic. I'm not a native speaker, but I'm not a student of Arabic anymore. I'm still learning things, but I, at this point, like I am a speaker of Arabic. And so when I teach, is it okay for me to say, we say this, we don't say this. And where is that line of like having authority in a language that I've come to live in many ways? Like, I speak to my dog in Arabic. I speak to my dog also in Hebrew, you know, I, listen to Arabic music and Hebrew music all day long. These are languages that I've come to embody in my life. But Arabic will never be an identity for me because I am not Arab and it's not an identity of mine to have. And so where is that line between embodiment and appropriation? Right. I think it's something to always respect. And so I very much believe in embodying a language and doing it as a part of your whole being, but never letting that go beyond you know right mm-hmm. because you're not going to suddenly be arab you know you're not going to suddenly be french or you know or or, or whatever the culture or the ethnicity of the language you're learning mm-hmm. we can only ever be observers and participants when we are welcome that's what i was going to say Not beyond that
0: participation um and it's it is great it's great to participate in a culture in the when in Rome do as the Romans do sense exactly um and I think
1: that's respectable
0: do you want to talk about your podcast and um you know
1: my, my non-existent podcast
0: okay well no, I no, wanna... it, it
1: exists and I'm in the process of reviving it I do want to bring it back I just um I did it last year and I think it went over well um, I did it, I got good listenership and then Marissa and I did a joint project during pride month. And then I just, I was going through a lot of personal stuff last year and I think it just, it became less of a priority. I am in the process of bringing it back. So I, and I have had a few people reach out regularly, like when are, when are their new episodes, when are their new episodes? And I'm like, hopefully by, you know, July, cause that'll only be a one year hiatus, <laughs> um, I do want to bring it back 100%. Uh, it's so for people who don't know, um, I have a podcast. It's just on a temporary hiatus right now called exhaling words. Um, this is sort of my quote or phrase or whatever. There's a Syrian proverb that um, <clears throat> I was asking around to friends, like, you know, are there any cute phrases or something that have to do with people who talk a lot or something? Cause I have a tendency to ramble. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I wanted to try to reflect again in a respectful way, like the culture in which I work mostly. Um, so, you know, my original thought was, let's call this Aaron's brain or something. And I'm just rambling for 30 minutes a week. Um, and I really wanted to try to hone it in slightly. And I was asking around some friends and a Syrian friend of mine taught me this expression that Apparently, a Lebanese friend of mine does not know, but at least apparently they use it in her village in in Syria, which is yibla hawa yitla kalam, which means like, it's in the masculine form, he, but he like swallows air and out comes words. And it's supposed to create this picture of like somebody who's like... (gasps) Uh, blah, 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 blah. Mm. You know who does like takes a deep breath and then rambles nonstop like until <laughs> they lose their breath, and she tells me this, and then I sort of laugh and I'm like, yeah, that kind of sounds like me, and she's like, yeah, I know, and um, and I didn't want to be like, this is the sucking in air and spitting out words podcast, you know, like, <laughs> like what do you name it? And but I thought about so the word in Arabic "yitla kalam" or "yitla" just means to like. And outcomes, like or an exits, exits. Words, words come out. But the idea of swallowing your words and then exhaling, I like the idea of that. So exhaling words just sort of got stuck in my crawl, and that's what we ended up going with. Um, and I like it. And so generally, the podcast is just me talking. Um, I don't do a lot of interviews like you do. <laughs> um, yeah. So. I I mean, anything from that. I've done a series on how to approach studying Arabic and taking on dialects. I did a short series on dialects of Persian and Farsi and this sort of stuff. Um, I think I'm going to go more niche as I come back um, and slightly get more into like, hey, I'm studying Mandarin. Let's talk about this weird thing or feature of Mandarin that I've been working on over the past couple of weeks. Um, I don't expect it to be some world famous podcast. I don't expect everybody to love it. Um, I just have always sort of been told over the years that people appreciate my genuine love for languages that if there's anything that comes out when I talk to people it's that this truly is my life's passion and mm. so I just wanted to sit behind a microphone and talk about that for as much as people are willing to listen. Um, <laughs>
0: can you so tell that's us what it is? Can you tell us where we can find it and
1: where we can find you on social media? So, um, the podcast has a URL (laughs) which is just exhalingwords.com, okay. Um, and so you can find me there. Uh, and on social media, I am I've recently rebranded myself as translingual. I live for a good pun. Um, (laughs) so Uh, on Instagram, that's translingual with a dot in between with a period. And on Twitter, it's an underscore because Twitter won't let you use periods. And that's where I'm most active. I have a Facebook page, but I barely use it. So Instagram and Twitter are mostly where I am these days. And the podcast, once it starts up again, will be shared through those platforms as well.
0: Great. I will add links to those platforms, to the show notes for this episode so that people can click and find you ASAP.
1: Awesome. <laughs> Hopefully with a new episode. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, since you shared a proverb in Syrian Arabic, yeah. I usually ask my last question is to share some sort of proverb or a joke or a popular saying. Um, and we didn't get back to the etymology <laughs> question from earlier. So I will give you the courtesy of choosing. Would you like to teach me that Syrian proverb or... Would you like to talk about some etymology?
1: I still haven't thought of a good etymology, so I can okay. just teach you the Syrian proverb.
0: <laughs> okay, so my last question. first of all, this is where I usually say thank you for your time and thank <laughs> you for this conversation and, and this is just the tip of the iceberg. I feel like we could talk for the next two weeks and we'd still oh have, easily <laughs> have, <laughs> we'd still have a lot to say, and I'd still have a lot to learn from you, but I really thank you for um, for sharing this bit in this conversation with me and with, with my listeners. Um, so fascinated and so happy that I could just tap a little piece of the knowledge you have <laughs> in your brain today for this conversation. Oh, thank uh, you. <laughs> I usually ask, even though we know where this is going, um. My last question, do you have any jokes, popular sayings, tongue twisters, cool slang words, idioms, words of wisdom, or words of advice in Arabic, Persian, or Hebrew, or any of your 70 plus languages to share (laughs) and to teach us? But we're going with Assyrian Proverbs, so I'm excited to try it.
1: Okay, so the first word is the word for to swallow, so it's yibla. 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 that last sound—if you could do it—is an iron. It's when you squeeze your pharynx. Yibla. Every
0: time, every time I get an Arabic proverb, it's always with the ayin, <laughs> and it's so hard
1: for me. But I, mean, I, I can know... give you one without ayin. No, no,
0: no, 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 because no. I know you guys are saying, "Listen, you talk a good game, and you want to learn Arabic, learn so you got to get, you got to learn it." So, exactly. Okay, let's try this word again. Yibla. Yibla
1: closer. So it's not the uh, uh, I know.
0: Yeah, yibla.
1: almost like you're choking. I hate that description. It's like choking. <laughs> yibla. Yibla. Okay. Yibla. And yibla. the word for air is just Hawa. 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 hmm So Yibla Hawa.
0: Yibla Hawa.
1: hmm And then to exit is Yitla. 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 So it's it's just Yitla. But the tall in Arabic, it's emphatic. So the L and all the other sounds go to the back of your mouth. Yitla. Yitla. Exactly. Yitla.
0: Yitla.
1: Yitla. Uh Yitla. So tala means to exit, to go out. So yitla. And then the word for speech or speaking is kalam. 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 Oh, I know that one. It's a good word. So yibla hawa.
0: Yibla hawa. Uh
1: Uh-huh. And then I forgot to include it in, like, an and. wa or ooh, ooh, yitla, kalam.
0: Yitla hawa.
1: Ooh, ooh, yitla, kalam. Ooh, yitla, yitla, like, Y-I-T-L-I, but with a dark T, (laughs) yitla.
0: Okay, let's start from the beginning. (laughs) Hold on, hold on, sweating in here. Okay, okay,
1: okay. 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 First phrase. Yiblahawa.
0: Yib One more time, I'm sorry. Yibla. Yibla hawa.
1: Uh-huh. Ooh. Ooh. Yitla. Yitla. Kalam. Kalam. Kalam with a K. Kalam. 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 Perfect. Yiblahawa u yitla kalam.
0: Yiblahawa udla.
1: يطلع. يطلع uh-huh. We'll get you there. We'll get you there. And if, for people listening, I'm not going to make you do it. If you're talking about a woman, you would change the Y at the beginning of each phrase to a T. She swallows air and she, and, well, actually, no. So in the second one, kalam is still the subject. So it would be, I didn't even think about this before I said it. It would be, <laughs> because it's the air that's or the speech is going out, and that's masculine. That gotcha. so, she swallows air. That that would be me. Ana abla hawa, hawa, I swallow air, uh, and air and words come out.
0: You make it's it. A it's a good so phrase. It sounds so easy and effortless and beautiful. It comes and... from.
1: Um, hours of sitting in a professor's office being this asked is, to repeat i over and over this is over the again. product of a lot
0: of hard work and dedication <laughs> yes. and we appreciate it thank you um, i spent 13
1: years of my life on this
0: <laughs> yes yes and you know what and i think that's what it is like when you get to that point where it's just like it, it it's it's it sounds effortless it looks effortless you can do it you can move and shake and and go on with it like that is that's the product of hard work and, yeah. and, you know, i and it always takes hard, hard
1: work, no matter yeah. the language, it, it's going to take hard work. And no matter
0: what you do though, if you're an yeah. Olympic swimmer, you didn't that's just hours get of in. Practice. Exactly. Yeah. You're a, you're a dancer with the New York city ballet you didn't just lace up your toe shoes last week. Like yeah. this is this is the product of very hard work. So mm-hmm. thank you for doing all that hard work. Oh, thank you for thank appreciating you for, it. <laughs> of course. Um, before I let you go, Erin, yeah. um, in any language, in the first one that comes to mind mm-hmm. in this situation after we've been talking for quite some time, uh lovely conversation and we're going our separate ways the first language you can think of what is the best way to say goodbye
1: um I feel like somebody's done this one on your show before so we'll do oh, you've never had a Hebrew speaker have you I have oh crap okay I missed that episode I was like I know you've had Arabic speakers and Farsi speakers um uh, okay
0: you're thinking too hard. I
1: am thinking too hard. Um, I'm just going to do what I always do with people because I think it's hilarious. When you say goodbye in Arabic, we just tell people, yalla bye.
0: Yalla bye.
1: Like, let's go, bye. Yalla bye.
0: Yalla, yalla bye. <laughs> exactly,
1: yalla bye.
0: Erin, yalla bye.
1: Yalla bye.
0: And I'll be talking to you soon.
1: Shukran <laughs> Thank you so much. Yalla bye.
0: Bye. <laughs>